Hello, I'm Ray Reich, CEO of RevOps Squared and the host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B SaaS industry thought leaders, executives, and people just like you to discuss how they use metrics, key performance indicators, and benchmarks to enable better data-driven metrics-informed decisions that accelerate revenue performance and increase enterprise value. If you'd like to gain insights into how your metrics measure up to industry benchmarks, you can learn more at RevOpsquare.com. Now, on to today's show. Welcome to today's Metrics at Measure Up podcast. We are joined today by a fellow metrics junkie, Chris Beal, CEO of Connect and Sell, and a longtime veteran in the tech industry. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, great to be here, Ray. Hey, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to be a guest. And I wanted to start with taking a minute and just introduce yourself to our listeners and what's led you to being a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Well, I guess the main thing is I run a company called Connect and Sell. And what we do is help business salespeople talk to lots more people, lots more like my team today, this morning, it is 10.07 a.m. on the Pacific Coast, has had 188 conversations and set 14 meetings. And that's just a handful of people. So we're into driving big numbers in terms of uh, business conversations. And that really drives into all the other metrics. It's the conversion metrics, it's the follow-up kind of metrics. You know, how do you manage time? It's the raw, 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 which is uh, what happens with dials. How do they convert to conversations? How do those convert to meetings? Uh, what happens in the world of the follow-ups? So I'm, as you say, I'm a metrics junkie. I, I kind of have to be. My background is I'm an old programmer. I come from the world of physics and mathematics. So I, I have a degree in physics and kind of a little different from the background of a lot of people in sales. But I've also spent a career building companies, and that means selling. Well, it's interesting. One of the things our audience knows is I'm an engineering by schooling, but I did transfer over to sales because I thought being able to articulate and share the technology and how it could impact business value and then the financial rewards, I thought it was a good move. But let's talk a little bit about the last six months, Chris. It's been a wild ride for the entire world and especially B2B sales professionals. And I just heard you say something about 188 conversations before 10.07 a.m. But let me pull back and what have you seen as far as the overarching approach to outbound sales activity over the last six months? How has it changed? Well, the main thing that we're being told, and we're not in the email business, so we don't know this firsthand, but HubSpot should know it, and they report it to everybody, is that there was a huge increase in the rate of email sending by B2B uh, salespeople. These aren't marketing emails. These are actually more direct kind of solicitations as, and uh, are assisted along by uh, the engagement, sales engagement products like Outreach and SalesLoft and Zant and and now soon coming on, or we will see more of it, Salesforce's new high-velocity selling product. And what happened as a result of that is that email response rates went way down. Interestingly, most folks intuitively thought that it would be too much to call people directly, either cold call or even if you've talked to them before, a follow-up call during this pandemic time, especially in March and April and May. And what we saw was that it got slightly easier to reach people. And I think that was for two reasons. One is that there was a fair amount of forwarding of business phones, work phones, to cell phones. Because as people went to work from home, which was a wave that occurred over about a two-week period in March, you know, a lot of folks became very aware 
of their ability to communicate, especially with their own team. And so oddly enough, the cell phone became the business phone and the business phone got forwarded to the cell phone. And if you could navigate a main phone number, you would actually get to folks' cells. And so that drove the dial to conversation rate down. That is fewer dials per conversation, not by much, but by a little. The other thing we saw is that folks who adjusted their message a little bit in March and April got higher conversation to meeting rates. And so overall, it was an improved environment for prospecting by phone. Not that prospecting by, by phone is ever easy. I'm looking at my teams today and it's taking 30.7 dials to get a conversation. And you know most people won't do that manually. You dial 60 to 90 dials a day and talk to two or three people is the standard. But we get to see it at an accelerated pace. So what we saw was a, a slight improvement. And then we also analyzed tone. And so it's not just the numbers in the raw, it's the outcomes. And you can get you know, an answer to question, how many conversations had positive tone or a positive outcome? which you can read directly off of the, uh, the outcomes of conversations. Was it a busy callback, interested, send information, did they accept the meeting and so forth? But you can also analyze transcripts of the text of the conversation itself, and then you can have human and automated listening for tonality. So overall, those who adapted did a little bit did well, and the way they adapted was just by softening their opening a little bit to recognize that they were interrupting somebody and that it might not be that great. There was a lot of tactical empathy that started to be used and, and the good cold callers did really, really well and continue to do well. Well, there are so many metrics that I could dig down into there, but let me start with one that I saw a post of yours and it really blew me away, Chris, and that was that over the last six months, while we've moved from a work in the office to a work from home environment, that the average meetings per day that one of the salespeople using Connect and Sell experience went up 30%, almost 1.3 meetings per day versus 1.0. How is that possible? Well, part of that is just that folks who are doing outbound are less distracted. And so they're able to focus more on, on their work. And the ideal environment for outbound calling would be a quiet environment at home where you're completely in charge of what's going on. Now, if you have kids and they're running around and stuff, that can be an issue, but it's amazing how quickly people adapt to it. It's also, you know, folks don't mind hearing children's voices in the background. They think it's kind of cool, actually. It's humanizing. So I think part of it is that there's less distractions. We all know when we're in the office, there is somebody, and I'll, I'll use a gender neutral name here. I'll call him or her social Sam. And they just need to go talk to their colleagues. They just need to. And it takes 15 or 20 minutes to recover from one of those conversations if you're a high velocity introvert. And since introverts make the best outbound salespeople, they get hit really, really hard when they're in the office and being interrupted. It's, it saps their energy. It's very distracting. And so they don't have that problem when they're working from home. So I think that's part of it. And then part of it is in the environment itself, that it's just gotten a little bit easier to get a meeting. And then lastly, there's an artifact in that data of a particular couple of weeks where one of our very large customers wanted to reach out to their installed base and set meetings concerning PPP loan. And one of these customers actually talked to 98,000 people in a week, actually 98,000 conversations, live conversations. And those happened to be kind of softer for setting meetings. So there was also I'll say a little skew. So while it was a mind-blowing number, I do report the numbers in the raw. I'm not a fan, being an old scientist, of trimming the data to match the hypothesis 
which I think that happens a lot. I just report it as it is. And so even if there's, in this case, a positive artifact from a little chunk of calling that went on, I went ahead and left it in. My view is it was essentially a little bit better than neutral and certainly vastly different from what people thought was going on. Well, that is interesting. I wanted to highlight something else I saw in one of your posts, and that is the increase in productivity overall work from home. And this was per a research project that Prodiscore did, and they actually said the knowledge worker had increased productivity by 47% from working from home. And at the same time, we had reduced commuting costs by over $800 billion. Do you think that same increase in work from home productivity is going to translate long-term to sales organizations, especially outbound sales organizations? Well, in one way it will. It's going to free up almost two hours a day. When I did that research, which was kind of a Saturday morning thing, not the Protoscore stuff. That's Protoscore just doing what they do. So Protoscore measures productivity at desktop. That's what they do. They do it brilliantly. And by the way, I believe when they measured our team, uh, I'll put in a plug for my SVP of sales and marketing, John T. McLaren. I think they said he was the most productive human being that they'd ever seen, according to their measurements, which I thought, hey, that's pretty good because, uh, you know, guy runs my sales organization. <laughs> and he also sells six, seven, eight million dollars a year of connect and sell on the side while he's uh, busy being a manager. So what they do is they measure the activity level and think about it this way. It's stuff you can see digitally. And they saw increases across the board in internal emails, external emails, uh, spreadsheets produced, documents produced, all that kind of stuff. You could say, well, activity doesn't amount to much, but if you have a baseline for an individual, and then something changes, they go to work from home. And then against that baseline, you get a 47% increase. You got a 47% increase. And that's what they were reporting. It wasn't a cohort level report. It was, it was individual by individual by individual against their own baseline. So they saw this 47% jump uh, in, in a discontinuous fashion between mid-March and April, and it sustained. Microsoft has seen something similar, although they aren't releasing the numbers. The site in Adela said publicly that they saw a big increase in productivity using Microsoft uh, Workforce Analytics, or maybe it's called Workplace Analytics. I forget the name of it. I'm, I'm engaged to a Microsoft employee, so you'd think I'd know, but hey, you know, can't learn all the product names, right? They were shocked by their own folks, the very work from office culture, and they saw this work from home list and realized, oh, you know, let's make this a matter of choice, both you know, for safety, because safety is the most important thing, but looking at it long term, maybe there's benefits. And uh, with regard to the commute, I think it's been self-evident, I would call it to every thinking person, that it's a tough trade-off economically to have a three-pound brain get in a 3,000-pound car in order to be physically closer to three-pound brains that it works with, some of them anyway, a small percentage. And if you go into an office with 100 people, you probably work with four of them during that day. And so you're closer to these other four three-pound brains so that you can talk directly through the air rather than talking like we are right now. If you just do the math, it's sort of an insane proposition, right? It's like it grew out of the factory approach to knowledge work because knowledge work began as the front office of factories. And we just assumed that we needed that model in order to, quote unquote, make things work. And I think that one, we've proven that productivity goes up when we go to work from home for knowledge workers. And two, then there's just the math. If you average a $50 an hour labor rate and you look at the, I think it's 21 minutes a day each direction 
for commuting on average for 48 million knowledge workers. That wasn't hard research for me to go and multiply those numbers together, right? You know, that's just multiplication, right? But the number that comes out is approaching a, a trillion dollars. And when you put them together, you have into the economy right now, I believe, more than a 1.2, 1.3 trillion dollars of additional value between productivity and the savings on the commute. And where we'll see a lot of that come out in the economy is in the local businesses, because local businesses will be serving folks who are no longer leaving during the day. Everybody likes to go and have a coffee. Everybody likes to go, you know, get something done. During the day when you work from home, you carve out an hour and you might go get a haircut. You might go do something else. So it's going to move, I think, a lot of business out of the cities and you'll kind of, I'll call it de-chain the economy a little bit. That is, the chains will be hurt and local people starting businesses, running businesses, and being known to the folks who are working from home who can come and visit their business are going to be the ones who benefit. And I think that we're going to see a, a massive shift in the use of, of what is now commercial real estate in downtowns and a massive reduction in the cost of maintaining the transportation infrastructure, mostly roads, that we wear out at an alarming rate by just driving those three-pound brains back and forth in a vehicle that's you know, way bigger than the body that, that's needed in order to make that brain work. You know, it's funny, Chris, I was looking at the math you were doing, and I was trying to justify my continued faith in investing in technology stocks. And when I saw the impact that this increased productivity could have on earnings and even top line revenue growth, it made me feel a little bit more comfortable that maybe a 25 PE ratio wasn't too much to pay. Oh, yeah. All tech is underpriced right now, in my opinion. If people have no idea, it, I'm, I'm me included, by the way, what this movement, this change in our society that's going to free up billions of hours of people's time, trillions of dollars, and will allow the virtual world to be more and more, you know, more easy for us. Like right now in Zoom, you and I are not on video, right? Because we're doing this as an audio podcast. But if we were on video, we don't really want to look at ourselves. We don't really just want a little flat screen, right? This is going to evolve. I saw a product yesterday for the first time that a young guy that I know is developing and it makes everything that Zoom and Teams and all those guys are doing look like child's play. And it's there and it doesn't require any download, runs in a Chrome browser. So you're going to see an amazing wave of innovation around adapting to this whole business of being remote from each other and being able to interact with high fidelity. Yeah, I remember, you know, you and I have a little bit more experience than some of our listeners and we went through a couple downturns, but Every time there's a downturn, I go back to 2009 and 2010, it really is a great catalyst for innovation. Companies like Uber, Twilio, Slack, they were all created in 2009 and 2010. We're going to see the same thing in 2020, I believe. Yeah, I'll throw a connect and sell in that hat, that ring. You know, we came out of the world of an experiment in 2007, and the company was built very quickly in 7, 8, and 9, and it was the downturn that made it possible. We're delighted, not for the downturn, of course, nobody likes those, but as a company, we sell capital efficiency. And that's really what technology is. Technology is packaged capital efficiency. It lets you take the same amount of money and get more done. And everybody who sells capital efficiency does better in downturns. And oddly enough, in boom times, when the money is flowing easily, you actually have a high waste factor in innovation. But in downturns, you get this 
this focus on stuff that really solves problems. And that's what sticks around. I mean, Uber really solved, solved the problem and still solves the problem. When I take this Chevy Volt that I'm selling today in Reno, because I'm moving, and I take it over to CarMax and sell it, do I have a car? No. Do I worry? No. I'm going to push a button, and a few minutes later, the car's going to show up and take me back to the house so that I can get in the other car and drive it away. That is capital efficiency right there. And there's, you know, it's everywhere in society. So downturns drive a more capital efficiency and a, a intensivity or awareness on the part of management. I tell you, there's a lot of boardrooms right now where uh, investor board members are saying, so guys, how are we going to stretch our runway? Well, the answer is not going to be hire more people. The answer is going to be technology. Hey, guys, how are we going to go ahead and hit that revenue number, maybe even beat it, with the situation that's in front of us? Well, the answer isn't going to be more heads. It's going to be technology. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. Some of our latest research really confirms that. So 40% of B2B SaaS companies have had staff reductions over the last four months. And over 80% of SaaS companies have reduced operating expenses, of which 35% of those reductions were in sales, and another 12% was in marketing. So almost 50% of the operating expense reductions were in the customer acquisition kind of functions. And then the last thing I wanted to share and to get your feedback on it and how this impacts outbound sales activity, 90% of companies in the March through April timeframe modified their messaging. And part of what our research has found is that messaging that focused on capital and operating efficiency were three times more likely to resonate with buyers than value-based messaging that focused on accelerating revenue growth. How have you seen the change in messaging to that operating and capital efficiency impact outbound sales activity strategy? Yeah, I think that shift is a natural shift during difficult times. Folks shift to being more uh, risk and cost aware and less upside pursuing. And in any case, by the way, it's easier to sell something that completely eliminates risk than something that uh, holds a tantalizing possibility of increase. People are very skeptical by their nature of upside promises, but they love to have something bad go away. And we happen to teach messaging as part of what we do. So you, as you know, at Connect and Sell, we sell dials, but we we consult and teach everything else for free. And we run a thing called Flight School that starts out with a messaging workshop, takes about an hour. And the hour is about the psychology, not about the message. But when you get into the message, we find that saying something along the lines of, I believe we've discovered a breakthrough that completely eliminates and then say something bad, right? Something that's a negative, something that's cost or something that's a risk. And then say something that, that's also bad emotionally, because people are very sensitive right now to the emotional cohesiveness or lack thereof of their team, because they've gone to work from home. So how can you keep your salespeople, especially, who are very interaction motivated, interaction energized, how do you keep them energized and engaged when they're sitting at home? Imagine I'm sitting at home and all I'm doing is sending emails all day that have a 30% less open risk, fewer are open, you know what I mean, since you guys found it, than before. It's, it's not exactly an energizing experience, right? You're sending the stuff out into the ether, and it's just not that great. So one of the things we, you know, here's our message. We say to people, I believe we've discovered a breakthrough that completely eliminates the waste and the frustration 
that keeps your best sales reps from being engaged and doing their job effectively. And folks resonate with that. And that's a change from our previous message, although we never had an upside message. So Chris, talk a little bit about that flight school and the messaging and going back to metrics. So if an organization is contemplating, I have 20% less salespeople, but I need to maintain or increase my pipeline growth. What are the key performance indicators or metrics that you think they should put in place to measure the productivity they're getting from the remote sales force through dialing versus emailing? Are there certain metrics you think are more telling than others? Yeah, I think conversation flow rate is the most important because that's the raw material for, for um, voice-based outbound. That is, how many conversations per day is each rep having? And the day is the natural unit, not the hour or whatever. You fire somebody in the middle of the day, right? And then take the time back. Everybody costs money by the day. They need to produce by the day. So a conversation per day, and that has to be with decision makers. So it doesn't count to go to voicemail and it doesn't count to go to a gatekeeper. Neither one of those has a chance of creating business. Dials are not that important. Dials, you, you only look at dials to see if your lists are performing reasonably well. It has nothing whatsoever to do with your reps. But conversations per day is important. And then your conversation conversion rate, conversation and meeting conversion rate, and also conversation to follow-up conversion rate. If you look at the, the big forces out there, the biggest one is you're not talking to enough people. The second biggest one is, by its nature, 11 twelfths of your market is not in a consideration cycle this quarter. And that's just the way it is. That is, the replacement cycle for B2B products is about three years. And the consideration period for a B2B product is about one, one quarter. So you have one quarter in which a target that you're talking to might be considering a product to so say they are your category of product. You have 11 quarters coming up in which they aren't. And that's true of everybody. So your chance of catching somebody in a consideration period of one quarter is, is only one twelfth, about eight and a half percent. And that means that 91.5% of your market sitting out there in the future. As some people say that calls for drip marketing, blah, blah, blah. I say it calls for having a conversation with everybody in your market once a quarter. And in particular, following up with those who answer the phone. So one of the glories of outbound calling is you discover through the activity itself an important piece of intelligence, which is who has a propensity to answer the phone, which is a habit, not happenstance. And now you have a cohort of people you can speak to about once a quarter, make sure that you offer value to them and that you're considerate of them. And when it's time to buy, they're much more likely to buy from you than Johnny come lately. Yeah, I think it's just human nature. If you have a relationship and you're talking to a potential buyer once a quarter, once every four months, you're building relationships. So when they do go into an active buying cycle, you will be at least in the forefront of their mind. Chris, let me ask a couple questions about the metrics. You mentioned number of conversations per day. What do you find would be a good benchmark for B2B SaaS companies to target for the number of conversations per day? And then take me down the funnel to the conversion rate from a conversation to a scheduled meeting. Sure. I'm looking at my team right now. It's now 10.32 a.m. So we've been talking for a little while. They're up to 204 conversations. And if I go top to bottom, this is partway through the day, right? We're not even to noon yet. My top rep, actually, not even a SDR, has had 28 conversations today. Next is 20. 
look for an SDR, Nexus 19, and so forth. If you take those out for the full day, the numbers will be north of 30. So I would say for an SDR, the number is 30, and for an AE, the number is probably 15. So with Connect and Sell, that might be an hour and a half of their time, maybe two hours uh, for the full cycle person, and then that's probably five, five and a half, six hours for an SDR or BDR. And then we look down funnel, and the question is, well, what should they be converting at? So raw cold call should convert at 5% or thereabouts. It's unusual to have true cold calls convert more than that. There are people who can do it. I know a few of them. But for you know regular folks who've been trained up, 5% for cold calls is fine. And a number around 10 to 12% for follow-up calls. That's where you're talking to the person again, but it's not mutually on your calendars. It's just it's sort of like a second cold call, except you have a relationship and you know what to say. When you blend it all together, you should be converting at around 7.5%. So if you take you know 30 conversations a day and you convert them at 7.5%, you get a, a flow rate of meetings, right? So if you you know you look at this and say, well, what is that number? It's about 2.25 meetings per day should be set. About a 60% show rate makes sense for the gross show rate, the raw show rate. And then if you follow up with everybody who does not show, what you'll find is your best prospects are the ones who do not show for the first meeting. They're the ones who are busiest. And so if you call them back, then you can get up to around 85% net show rate for those 2.25 conversations, and you end up with a net outflow for each SDR of about two meetings per day and for each AAE of about one meeting per day. I would be pretty shocked if most B2B SaaS organizations and their SDR team or outbound inside salespeople are having 30 conversations a day. When you walk into an account and they haven't benefited from a solution like Connect and Sell, What's the average amount of conversations that most of your prospects and new customers have been holding? It's not 30, is it, Chris? No, it's more like three, three or four. And, nor and that's often overreported, by the way, because conversations with gatekeepers are considered often to be conversations. Wow. So you're talking about a potential 10x increase in productivity just on conversations held. And then we can focus more of our conversational intelligence and coaching on that conversation to meeting scheduled rate, right? Exactly. And the action there is really interesting because it's inside the conversation. And I think this is the biggest area of metrics neglect and metric utilization in all of sales. So if I were to look at my team right now, I'm jumping over to a report we have called the Rep Performance Report, which I'm going to run just for today. And I can look at, for instance, who on our team has the highest busy callback later outcome for a conversation today. And the question is then, does that person have an issue with their voice today that causes people not to want to stay on the phone? I mean, sales is a contact sport. And the way we make contact is with our voice. And if we're not looking at call outcome and figuring out whether they tell us something about somebody's voice today, because people's voice changes a lot. It depends a lot on what's going on at home. If somebody is having a difficult time at home and whatever, with their kids, you know, finances, whatever, 
it will often show up in a tightness of the voice and an eagerness to get to the kind of the deal, so to speak. And that puts people off. So I like to be able to come in and say, hey, here's one of my reps. I have great confidence in his voice. So when he has a busy callback later, I'm not too worried. But he did have a 65% busy callback later uh, today so far. And that's top on the list. And I want to click through. And then I care about another metric, which is true talk time. How long in the busy callback laters was the longest conversation? How long was the shortest? And what were they in between? And then I want to take the longest one and listen to it and the shortest one and listen to it. Now, that whole process, the cycle time for me as the coach to do all of that is about two minutes end to end. And I found through a metric, which is the stack rank busy callback later number, I found a way to address the number one mathematical failure point in sales, which is inability to keep somebody engaged with you long enough in order to get to the value part of the conversation. Wow. So you were able, and did you use conversational intelligence to facilitate that, Chris, or how did you figure that out? Uh, I just did that with Connect and Sell. We match up you know, the outcomes that are in, say, Salesforce or Dynamics or HubSpot or whatever where you have the drop down after you've made a call that connects with somebody and then what's the outcome? Busy call back later, interested in information. Everybody has a list of those. We just bring those over and pop them up on the screen and connect themselves. So this is self-reporting. You have to audit and train and manage for accuracy of outcome reporting. But having done that, then I've got every conversation for today or for any period of time. I've got all the, the uh, outcome numbers. So I can look at that across the team. And a key to this kind of metric is absolutes aren't worth very much, but relative to the other team members is very important. You want to be able to stack rank. And so, for instance, if I'm looking for closing will, so somebody who goes with an interested send information generally has lower closing will than somebody who manages to either get a meeting or you know, some other outcome, right? Because that's giving up. Somebody says, send me information, you give up and you send them information. So I always look at our team and the highest number there is 12.5% today. This guy carries a big quota and makes a lot of money. And then it's 10% down. If that number is, you know, is at the top of the list and it's big, this one looks fine to me today. But if it's big, say it's 25, 30%, I think it's often 70% for some reps. You have somebody who needs to be trained and coached on how to ask for the meeting and how to defend the objections that come up, the, uh, hey, we're set objection, the, what I call the Venus flytrap objection, where somebody says, tell me more, and you, you're a sucker and you go for it. So those things need to be trained and coached. Otherwise, you're just hoping by chance that you get a good rep who happens to be a genius at every part of the conversation and holds that every day, which, by the way, there are no such reps. Wow, Chris, I tell you, I'm thinking about all the metrics that you've shared for our listeners over the last 35 minutes, and I'm having a, a hard time figuring out which ones I want to highlight here at the end, but there are a couple other things I wanted to pivot to of what you said earlier. One was you said that dials per conversation really more is a list performance metric, but in our research, it highlights that sales says that the number one thing that they wish was better was the quality of the data in the pipeline that marketing's impacting. So for our marketing listeners out there, do you have a benchmark or KPI that you think dials per conversation should be targeted for their list performance? 
You know, it's funny. It, it depends on who you're calling. So if you're calling high and big organizations, your dial the conversation is going to be a big number. You might have a number like 40, 45, because those people are fundamentally hard to reach. If you have the skill to have a conversation with them, the yield is so high on this conversation that even though that dialed conversation of 40 might be twice what the, the mean is. The mean is about 20, 24, 23, 24, thereabouts across everybody. But you know, means don't mean very much. Averages don't mean very much across sets that have distinct cohorts in them. You kind of have to go with your own. That's why we offer this thing we call the intensive test drive. So among other things, you can experience your dialed conversation for your list and you can experience having zillions of conversations, you know, at least a couple dozen uh, per rep, because it's different across different folks. It's not really the issue that marketing should be solving, other than once it's a good idea to call somebody, having as good a phone number as you can get for them, preferably to a main number and a direct or cell number, is important, but that's just data hygiene. The big error that we see and we see it all the time, is a failure to inspect a list for titles before calling the list. And folks tend to think that that requires that you look at each individual in the list and they say, well, that's too hard. I went to Zoom Info, I did my query, I've got to trust it, here's the data, I go and dial it. Well, as soon as salesperson ends up after a lot of effort, now these, this is even with Connect and Sell, there's no effort, right? They just push a button and wait, like my people are waiting four minutes and 36 seconds on average to talk to somebody today. But say they're having to dial, so it's two hours of work, and then they talk to somebody, and that's somebody that any idiot could see you shouldn't talk to. Why are they still in the list? That's where marketing loses credibility. And the way marketing can protect themselves from that loss of credibility is simple. Before the list goes to sales, take it into Excel, pivot the list on title, then sort it descending on the number, the count of each title, and take the first stupid title you see in there where there's nobody with that title that you'd ever want to talk to and take them out as a group and throw them away. And then you have high relevance, which is what salespeople want. They want relevant conversations, not served on a silver platter, but they'll never forget when you're in the business of you know, selling equipment to help people make jet airplanes or whatever, that you gave them somebody who runs a watermelon stand. They'll never forget that. Interesting. So this is one of those lies, damn lies statistics. You could get a dial to conversation of 15 or 20, which would be far below the mean. But if you're talking to the head watermelon standkeeper, it doesn't matter what the metric is, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's, this is, you know, this is a big deal in the sciences, right? Where I came out of the world of physics. If you don't get the stuff categorized right, that is, it came out of the same experiment, same apparatus set up the same way the numbers are meaningless. You can't compare what comes out of one instrument to what comes out of another. And this is something that we do all the time in sales. We just go, oh my God, there's a, a volume requirement for a certain amount of data. Let's go get it. And by the way, that's driven by this other thing that happens, which is the team's too big. The sales team is too big because they have to dial too much. 95% of their time, if they're doing outbound, is wasted dialing to nowhere. What, dialing literally to nowhere, to a dead letter box that, called voicemail. If you leave two or three voicemails for somebody, it's not good. The more you leave, the worse it is. So it's a kind of a, just a fundamental waste problem. 
right? It's kind of like saying, hey, here's the job site. The job site is the conversation. And we're going to have you spend 95% of your time commuting to the job site. Nobody would be very good at their job, regardless of how good they are. And they're not better because it takes longer. That's the other conceit as well. If they have fewer conversations, they're higher quality. That's not true. The way to have great conversations is to get good at it and then make great lists. And by the way, never qualify during a cold call or a follow-up call because what you're doing is modifying the list on the fly according to the tastes of the sales rep. It'd be as though you're running a factory and instead of having your inputs, your raw materials or your, your, your input parts come in and then assessing whether the parts are good or bad based on the yield of a standard machine that you have, you'd say, well, no, no, let, let's take this one that didn't work so well and take it over to this other machine or let's buff it up or let's grind on it. You'd never know if your suppliers are providing you with good input. So we learned a long time ago in manufacturing, a field I spent 30 years in, that you've got to leave the inputs alone and just process them in order to learn whether the inputs are any good. So you shouldn't have the reps messing with the data. They should just process it into a meeting. And then you take that yield number. And if the yield is too low, if your cold yield is 3%, You've got an issue with your, your messaging, probably, or you have an issue with how it's delivered, rep skill, or if you've got those under control, you have an issue with relevancy within your input list, and you have to do it in that order. So Chris, this has been a really informative session on the Metrics That Measure It podcast, and I want to leave it with one final question. You've created your own high-performing, almost outbound engine at Connect and Sell to drive your own business. If you were to be speaking to our audience, which is a lot of CFOs and CEOs who are trying to gain operational and capital efficiency, for their outbound activity, what are the two or three things you would recommend them to do first to be able to improve that productivity? Well, I probably just recommend one because it's free and CFOs prefer free to everything else in the world. And it's highly informative. And what it'll likely say is your team is bigger than it needs to be. You're spending too much on headcount and you're getting too little yield. And so that's, we offer this thing. It's called the Connect and Sell Intensive Test Drive. And the idea is for a team to use the Connect and Sell engine, which allows you to run at 10x speed for one day for free. And we've had folks make real money doing that. That's not its purpose. I think Tony Sapoyan and, and Billy Franz over at SADA said they made tens of millions of dollars during their test drive that lasted only three hours. So every once in a while, you'll get that benefit, but that's not the point. The point is, unless you know your metrics, the real metrics for your market, what's the dial to, to conversation ratio? What is your current conversion rate of cold conversations? What is your current conversion rate for follow-up conversations? What is your average amount of time it takes to get a conversation? So what's the flow rate of conversations per day per rep? Unless you know that and then what's potential, you really can't plan the transformation of your business in order to go to a highly capital efficient sales model. Because you can save 85% in general on the overall cost of your sales team just by getting rid of that 95% that's waste. And so that's it. It's one thing. It's free. I don't know of another way of getting there because the flow rates are too small. You know, at two or three conversations a day, there's just not that much to learn. The law of small numbers. So for our CEO and CFO listeners out there, 
if your outbound activity isn't converting at a, at least a 5% conversion for cold calling to meeting, right? It's meeting, I believe, from conversation to meeting, or 10 to 12% conversion rate from conversation to meeting for follow-up calls, and or you're not seeing at least a conversation for every 24 or 25 dials. One of the things you might want to do to reduce your CAC ratio, which by the way, CAC ratio has increased almost 20 to 25% in the first half of 2020 over 2019 is get those metrics via test drive with connect and sell. Chris, anything you'd like to end the session with our listeners? Yeah, that's about it. Conversation flow rate is king. You know, we count heads. We should be counting conversations per day. Chris, from your lips to God's ear. Thank you, my brother. Hey, thanks for having me on, Ray. Love the numbers.